You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Have you ever gone to like a restaurant that the service was so bad you told yourself you're never going back again? You ever been one like that? And or you've heard about something like like um like when we first moved in, there was a uh, you know the restaurant over here. They were they were thawing out their fish on the top of a van in the middle of the summer. That was pretty gross, <laughs> but you know what? I still go there, and I like it. Uh, I give it an 8 out of 10, and the food's always out, and there's lots to pick from, but that gave me second thoughts, <laughs> but sometimes you go someplace, and you're like, ah, I just can't do it anymore, and then one day on your drive back home or to work or out looking for a place to eat, you see on the door new ownership, right? You ever seen those? You, you ever give something a second try because of new ownership? I have, because I'm like, hey, things should be different under new ownership. Is that right? I mean, you expect if, if someone comes in and takes over the place, things aren't just going to be the same. They don't put a banner up that says new ownership because everything's the same. They put a banner up new ownership because everything should be different. I mean, if you had a problem It's getting worked on, right? Maybe they've remodeled. Maybe it looks different. It feels different. The food, the menu, it should be different and and hopefully better, right? New ownership brings that. Well, see, that is what is happening in Corinth and in our life. As a Christian, when we give our life to Jesus Christ, we have new ownership. And that new ownership moves in to our life through the Holy Spirit, and, and there should be things that are different, right? When new ownership takes over, when there's new management, things are run different. You should look different. You should be different. You should respond different. Things about your character should even be different, all right? So this was the issue in Corinth. There's these new Christians under new ownership, uh, new new people, I should say, under new ownership. Uh, They lived in a city that had a reputation for being wild, and the people would, would, from all over Rome would travel there to gamble, to party, to mess around and go home. And then it happened, people in that city who ran these, these prostitution churches and these houses of, of, uh, of gambling and, and all these places where uh, there was uh, just wild activity and, and lifestyles and perversion, these people began to become followers of Jesus. And new ownership happened. And with that new ownership was a struggle to look like the new owner and to be like the new owner. They were church struggling uh, to be like Jesus in a culture that was pulling them in different, uh, a different direction than what God says. And, and you know, it sounds like us today. It sounds like our life. It sounds like our culture. It sounds like kind of where we are when we read the paper, read the news, or get up in the morning, go to work. We have a culture that seems to be pulling us away from what God says. People in this Corinth Church were coming together from different backgrounds, different nationalities, and different uh, cultures, different arenas of life from all over the Roman Empire. Um, and not everything was care bears and unicorns and rainbows when they got together. They started realizing that when they got together, uh, there was going to be fights. There was going to be issues. Uh, people started driving each other crazy. And, and even to the point that they were taking each other to court. And that's kind of the first thing we're going to talk about today. Uh, Divisive disputes and simple principles are what I want to talk to you about today. Now, there's a section in today's message that is possibly one of the most controversial issues in our country. And um, so what I'm going to do when we get to that part, I'm just going to skip it. Because I don't want to cause any trouble with any... No, we're not going to skip it. We're going to address it, all right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 is where we're at today. So if any of you has a dispute, this is a legal issue, a legal matter they're talking about here, you know because of where the conversation goes. <coughs> Excuse me. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly, that's the unbelievers, for judgment in a courtroom instead of before the Lord's people? By the way, this is also a great case 
for Christian counseling. If you are in need of, of, of counsel in your life and you're in need of, of, of ministry on a personal and dealing with your past, you know, you should go to a Christian counselor. You should go to someone who has a biblical worldview in the same way that this that Paul is saying, hey, if you're dealing with legal issues, you need to get a, a Christian perspective of this. He says, or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Now, this was the issue in the church. Christians were suing Christians. Believers were taking believers to court over trivial issues. Listen, he said, can you not deal with this yourself? You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You guys are family. You have the mind of Christ for crying out loud. And then he says something interesting. He says, man, you're going to judge the world one day. And you're going to judge the angels one day. What does that mean? Well, the Bible tells us that as heirs of Jesus Christ, as Christians, that when the judgment comes, that we will be a part of judging the world and the fallen angels, the devil himself. So think about that. The very one that condemns you is the one that you will be judging. He says, man, you're going to be judging heavier issues in the afterlife than we ever imagined, and you're competent to be able to do that through the Holy Spirit. Can't you deal with this issue in your church? And by the way, I want you to notice if you have a Bible, circle or underline, competent to judge trivial cases. Now, this is important because this is not about settling criminal activity behind closed doors. This is not about dealing with things secretly because churches have a, have a bad reputation for dealing with criminal activity behind closed doors. We see this in, in uh, large churches sometimes where they don't want the, the news. They don't want, you know, they don't want to be found out or some entire organizations, you know, uh, they, they've been... I don't want to point out any of them, but you kind of know on the top of your head, their church has been covering things up for years. He's not talking about hiding or covering up or dealing in-house with, with heavy issues of crime or abuse. We're going to talk about that in a second. But he's talking about trivial issues. And why is this? Because we're family. With new ownership becomes new family. So he goes on to say, verse 4, Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? He says, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? He's like, man, you're telling me that there's nobody in your church that can help you deal with this. That you have to go to court. There's no one that can help you resolve this. Verse 6, but instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. Remember, we're becoming a laughing stock. How embarrassing. We're supposed to be people who, who love each other, who are forgiving, who are gracious. We're supposed to be family, and we can't get our act together in our house. How in the world were people outside of our house, outside of the house of God, want anything to do with us if we can't even deal with our own issues? Now, this is not an anti-court passage. In fact, he later says in Romans uh, talking to the church in Rome, in Romans 8 uh, and 13, how God gave us our court systems, how God even gave them the Roman court system to protect the innocent and to uphold justice. So he's not anti-court. It's important to know that. He's saying Christian to Christian, brother to brother, sister to sister, family to family, can you not deal with issues? Can you not solve your problems together? He goes, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. What does that mean? He says, man, you are so bound to being right. You are so bound to having to have your way. You're bound to your own pride. He says, you think you're free, but you are bound to yourself. And he says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? He said, man, I'd rather you just accept the fact that somebody did you wrong and that somebody cheated you and move on with your life instead of being vindictive. But he says, this is what you're doing. But, he says, instead, you yourselves 
are in return cheating and doing wrong. You do this to your own brothers and sisters. Somebody does you wrong, you do them wrong. Someone cheats you, you cheat them. And then if you still can't deal with it, man, you're suing them. You're taken to court. Man, this is wrong. You're bringing shame upon the church. You're doing the same in an effort to defend yourself. He says, man, there's no, there's no place in the body or in this family when dealing with dishonesty. So here's a simple principle before we get into the heavier issues today. Write this down. Christians should not sue other Christians, especially those in your church family. Now, I hope there's nobody here talking to an attorney about me today or talking to someone in this room. If at all possible, he says, try to work it out. Try to work out a solution. And if you can't, just accept that you've been wrong. Deal with it or drop it. But don't take it to the outside world for them to, you know, look down on us. Try to work it out. The civil courts are our final and last step. Don't be petty. This ruins families. Have you ever, don't raise your hand. Have you, just, I was curious, but better not. Have you ever sued somebody? Don't raise your hand. Have you ever sued somebody? All right? If you have, I want you to think, are you still friends with them? <laughs> you know, have that work out in your relationship. Are you still, uh, do you still have a good relationship with that person? Usually that destroys and kills. It ruins relationships. And he says, man, you have family in this church together. You have family. And once you start, like, suing each other, man, you're, like, tearing the family apart. People start taking sides we must learn to wisely and effectively deal with conflicts that arise within our church community. That's the heart of this whole thing. It's not really about suing people. It's about we must learn to deal with our issues. We must learn to confront them and deal with them. This echoes back to what he talked about in chapter 5 and in Matthew 18 that Jesus talked about. And again, this does not exclude outright criminal activity or dangerous activity. Okay, if someone is being uh, abusive or violent or has, has done something criminal, then if you don't take a part in revealing the truth and bringing that person to justice, you will be a party to that. All right, so this is not about, this is about dealing with trivial cases and trivial issues, okay. Now, they failed to address difficult issues to the point that it became legal issues. And listen, don't hide from confrontation. It can grow into incredible division. The next part is a hard pill to swallow, and this is kind of where we're going to hang out today. Not only do we have a new family under new ownership, but we have a new walk. And with that new walk, like I said, when you walk into a place that says new ownership, you, you expect things to be different. And Paul is saying, you know, you have a new owner. It's, it's the Lord God who's, the word Lord means master. He owns your life now. And the Holy Spirit has taken over management and moved in. You should be different. And so he's about to deal with some pretty controversial stuff. And this is PG-13 stuff today, all right? So in regard to the divisive and victive people, Paul says this. He's going to say something powerful, and then he's going to say something beautiful. This is the part that's hard to swallow and powerful. He says, or do you not know that wrongdoers, that means the wicked or the unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah, sure, I get that. The unrighteous, the wicked, those people that do wrong, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. I got that. I got that. Sure, sure, sure. But who determines what is wicked? Who determines what is right and what is wrong? Well, it's not us. It's not me. And it's not even Paul. Paul is reflecting biblical principles displayed throughout all of God's word. So he says this, do you not, he says, do you not know that they will not inherit the earth? And then he says, don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. And then he gives a little short list. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. Some translations will read the word effeminate and the word homosexual because it's actually two words. But the NIV translates it into one thing, but it's actually two different things. Um, he says, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is authoritative. That means they will, it doesn't say are going to have a hard time 
entering the kingdom of God. It says these are the type of people who embrace and live this kind of life, will not inherit. This is very definitive and authoritative. So here's a simple principle. Number two is living like the world results in the world's judgment. If you are a Christian, you are under new ownership, and you live differently. Why? Because God has moved in, and because we see the world differently. We see our part in the world differently. Now, anybody here ever, like, go to a bridge or go to a rock or a lake, you know? Um, If you're hanging over a bridge, what's the first thing you do? If you're a guy, you probably spit. (laughs) <laughs> it's like we, right? Uh, if, if you're a girl, you might spit. But you, but here's what I like. To, why do we spit? Because I want to see a ripple. You know, I want to see some kind of splash. And I'm like, and it goes bloop, and nothing. I'm like, where's a rock? And I don't want. I don't want a rock. I want a rock. You know what I'm saying? You go to the lake or you go to a bridge. Uh, anybody with me on that? You just want to find the biggest rock that you can. Anybody ever done that? Am I just the only little kid in the house that's still, a, you know, grown up that's still a kid? I want to find the biggest rock and drop that, that baby in, right, and try to get the, you know, the, the biggest, you know, sound or the biggest splash I can get. Even if I'm on like a lake, I'm like, oh, I'm shot putting it out there, you know. It's actually shot, but uh, I'll just get out. So, uh, or you try to, and then after that, you're like, you're skipping rocks, you know, seeing how many. But here's the deal. You're looking for the ripple. The, the bigger the drop, the bigger the ripple. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying when you become a follower of Jesus Christ and God drops into your life, man, there's nothing bigger than that in your whole life. And the ripple that begins to echo out of your life is massive. And it begins to shake up everything around you. And he says, there's some, this is the short list. This is not, this is not a, you know, the only list. He actually mentions verses just like this. There's notes, uh, verses in your notes that he mentions verses like this in Ephesians and in Thessalonians, where he lists similar and additional things. He's saying, so this is not a definitive list. But he's saying when, when God comes into your life, there's a ripple of change. And it is visual, it is effective, it is seen, and some things begin to change in your life. So he mentions, this is the old life list. He mentions nine areas to reflect on, things that we don't like to accept that we're going to take a look at and define each one of them and see what he means. So let's take a look. The first one, he says, don't be deceived. The sexually immoral. Now, the word there is pornea. We looked at this last week a little bit. And pornea, it's where we get the word porn from today. But the word means sexual activity outside of God's design. The, the strictest definition is illicit sex. But in God's definition, illicit sex is anything outside of God's design. So any, everybody say any. Any sexual activity outside of God's design Which, by the way, sex is a gift for marriage. So any sexual activity outside of marriage. That's why this word is often uh, translated as fornication. And some people think, well, that means, you know, sexual intercourse. And so I can do anything but that and I'm good to go. No, this is any, any sexual activity outside of God's design. And God's design is for that to be with a husband and wife. It's a gift for that marriage to, to strengthen them and to, to give them pleasure and joy and to bring them family and, uh, and to just kind of be kind of a glue to the joy that's in their life. So um, this is a big umbrella, big word. It means all kinds of things, all right? And then he says, idolater, and that is someone who worships a false god. And then you're like, well, I don't do that today. Well, this is by name or by principle. Maybe you worship your work or your job or your kids or your spouse or an activity or a sport or a hobby. If anything takes precedent over the worship of God or, or the focus or the obsession of God as your primary in your life, that becomes an idol in your life. And he says, well, these are things. This is the short list. This is the old life list. Worshiping false gods. 
And then there's adulterer. Now that's pretty self-explanatory. We all know what that means. That's someone who's unfaithful in marriage. This is someone who's either uh, unfaithful by one who's married or by a single person who has relationships with a married person. That's also adultery. So if there is an unfaithfulness in the marriage, whether you're single or married, that is adultery. And people who live in that, he says, don't be deceived. People who live in this life style, uh, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, this was a common lifestyle back then. you got to realize that in Corinth, they had many wives. They had many relationships outside of marriage. They had three temples to the goddess Aphrodite, who was the sex goddess, their mascot of the town. And so men and women would go to these temples freely and have sex as an act of worship with people that were not their husbands and wives. So, so Paul is like, man, he's, he's cracking open a, a, a window of their heart and their life that is changing. That that rock is dropped, man. There's a ripple happening. He says, you're on a new ownership. A lot of things are going to change. And then two words are used in the original, uh, defined as one phrase in the NIV, which actually simplifies it to, uh, to help people understand. But actually, it's two words. And the two words, uh, one is translated effeminate. Also, it's also translated as male prostitute. And what does that mean? That means someone, this is PG-13 today, this is someone who receives homosexual acts. And the reason why it's defined as effeminate because this is someone who takes on the female role as a man. Someone who takes on the, someone who receives homosexual acts. And then the other word that is used is the word for the general, generic word in, in Greek culture for homosexual. It's also, it's where we get the word sodomite. And the word basically means as someone who uh, performs homosexual acts. So the first one is someone who willingly receives homosexual acts, and the second one is someone who gives homosexual acts. So NIV, to simplify it, just simply says uh, men who have sex with men. But it's actually two words, and some people will say, well, it's dealing just with, with male prostitutes. No, it's two words dealing with two issues. One who receives, probably inclined towards those who are in male prostitution, which was very big in, uh, in Rome. Uh, And in Corinth, but he also says the second word, in general, anybody who participates in this activity. So that's a big, big thing here. Now, um, again, these are things we don't like, but he says anyone who embraces this kind of life will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on. See, by the way, we like to say that we like to single out the ones we don't like, but he actually lists several here. And maybe you're guilty of one of the others. He says, uh, Either do thieves. These are people who, who steal. And the idea here is that these are people who secretly steal. Maybe you steal at work and nobody even knows. Maybe, maybe you're not robbing a bank, but you're stealing from people, stealing uh, things or items or uh, opportunities or work, you know, like stealing hours from somebody. You know, this is, this is a thief. You're a thief if, this, if that's what you do. And then he says greedy. And the greedy, this is like, sometimes you don't even know someone's greedy because this is an obsession over the need to have more. This is the person who is never or rarely ever satisfied with anything. He says the person who is never satisfied, who just wants more and more and more, that person needs Jesus. They will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say a drunkard. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's simple. (laughs) A pattern of intoxication. This is someone who's under the influence, whether it be a drunk or high, someone who has the pattern or is constantly finding themselves in this place where they are drunk. Well, that is a lifestyle. And he says, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And he says, slanderer. Now, we, we think of slander as like, you know, people who take to court, you gave me a bad name. The word slander here is someone who's verbally abusive, someone who attacks another person with their words. If, if you're someone who's just constantly verbally assaulting people, you've got a heart problem. And Paul says, well, you probably are not inheriting the kingdom of heaven because this is, this is the short list or this is, a, this is the old life list and apparently you're still living in the old life. And he says, and then swindler. A swindler is a cheat. 
someone who defeat, uh, deceives, a fraud, someone who takes advantage of. Maybe you're cheating on your taxes this month, and you know what? You're a cheat. You're a swindler. Some of you, maybe you're cheating people on bids at a, at a job, and you're, you're overbidding people. Uh, or maybe you're, you're, you're undermining your job, and you're a cheat. You're a swindler. If this is the pattern of your life, you've got a heart problem. Uh, and so Paul says, is this how you're known? Is this what you're known for? Keep in mind, keep in mind, this is not about people who stumble or struggle, but embrace. This is not about people who stumble and occasionally slip up in one of these areas. This is not about someone who struggles with these areas. You might be struggling with one of these today. And, and you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And you struggle with it. You haven't embraced it. You haven't camped out there. You, you haven't accepted this as part of your life. But you're struggling. You're fighting against it. And, you know, you can still be a follower of Jesus and, strumble, and struggle and stumble. He says, but those who embrace this kind of life, he says, this is very simply what he says. If someone who says they are a Christian embraces a life like this, don't be deceived that may not truly be a Christian and will, not, and will not inherit the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Now, that, that's a really tough one because I know people, I said a prayer when I was a teenager, when I was in VBS, or when I, went, when I was a kid, I said a prayer and I was baptized. But now you live and embrace a life that God says is not God's design and plan for you. And so if you embrace that life, don't be deceived. Don't kid yourself. Don't let that person kid you. If they live and embrace a life like this, they may not be a Christian. And if they're not a Christian, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So he says, do not, he says, don't you know, verse 9, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither sexually moral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, or slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then after he says this powerful thing, he's going to say some beautiful thing. And look at this, verse 11. And that is what some of you were. I think that is one of the most powerful verses in the whole Bible. He says, remember, that was you. That was you. you. You were that person struggling with homosexuality. You were that person who was an adulterer. You were that person who had false idols. You were that cheat. You were the swindler. You were that, that, that drunkard. You were the fighter. You were that, that, that verbally abusive person. But he says, that's not you anymore. Remember who you were. And then he says something pretty powerful. He says, because you were washed, he says, and you were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. One of the most powerful and beautiful verses in the Bible, that is what you were. I want to play a video for you right now. It's called uh, Beautiful Mess and how God takes our beautiful, uh, our messy, just scribble of a life and turns it into something beautiful. And that's what this verse is talking about. So let's take a look at this. I've heard it. You've heard it. It's time for a new beginning. Time to start a fresh page or paint a new picture with our life. Sounds great in theory, but it can seem impossible. Life is messy. The lines have gotten blurred. Maybe we just don't know where to start. We look at the canvas of our lives and see mistake after mistake after mistake. It's overwhelming. When I look at my life with these messy lines and scribbles, it makes me think, is this as good as it gets? There's no eraser that can make this life make sense. But what if? What if there was someone that could make sense of our mess? They could take all our scribbles, all our mistakes, all our missed opportunities, and make them into a masterpiece. And then I remember, there is Jesus. He gives us a new life. 
Every day is new. Every day is a blank canvas full of possibility and promise. He takes our canvases, our lives, that have been filled up with shortcomings, secrets, tragedies, and embarrassments, and he helps them make sense. When I look at the canvas of my life and I see nothing but disorder and chaos, I have to remember this. God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of peace. And you know what? He wants to take my hand and bring peace to the canvas of my life. So as we seek to make our mark, let us give God all our scribbles, all our mistakes, all our hurts, and trust that he will turn our messy lives into a masterpiece, his masterpiece. So here's the next simple principle, and the principle is this. God can touch and change anyone, even you. God can touch and change anyone. He says, this is what some of you were. Some of the things we're like, man, that's a terrible list. Yeah, it is a terrible list. But that's what some of you were. And he says something beautiful. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. By the way, Notice the reference to the Trinity of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You have the Son, the Spirit, and the Father God, the tri-you right there. So look at this. Notice he says you've been washed. That means you've been made completely clean. That means you've been made new. That means that sin is gone. You're washed. You're clean. You've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. This kind of blood doesn't stain us red. It stains us white. It washes us white. As snow, sanctified. He says that word means set apart. You are sanctified. That means God plucked you out of your sin and popped you into his purpose, your destiny and your journey. I think of like if you've ever had kids and, and you have like a, a pizza, you know. Uh, I, we've seen this in youth group many times. Uh, you open up a box of pizza and we're not eating pizza yet. We're going to do some other activities. But a kid sees a pizza, a piece that has like layered with a lot of pepperonis, right. And he wants that piece. He's afraid he's not going to get that piece. So in front of everybody, he licks his hand and he touches the pieces that he wants. Guess what he just did? He sanctified them. He set them apart for a purpose. He goes, mine, 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 mine. It is now set apart for him, for that purpose, for his purpose. He goes, you're mine now, and you know what? Nobody else wants it. This is what God does, man. Jesus looks at you and he says, Sam, mine, Dan, mine. And he's like setting you apart for a purpose. And then he says, and we're justified. That means legally declared not guilty. I like to remember this, that justified means it's like God is saying, it's just as if you never sinned, just as if you died. You have been found not guilty. You are justified. How? By the grace of Jesus Christ, by the blood of the cross. Whatever you've done, whatever you were, wherever you've been, you have been washed, you have been forgiven, you've been set apart, and you are declared not guilty. That is what you were. Paul reminds us. That this was not cheap. Our washing, our sanctification, our justification was not cheap. It was a huge price. And it was the price of an incredible, vile, but bloody and beautiful cross. I like that old song, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Oh, I forgot the, the, the all to him I owe. Uh, sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I used to love that song growing up as a kid. He takes us and he pays it all. Jesus paid it all. There we go. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white. As snow. He says, that's what you were, but you've been washed. We have a new family. We have a new walk. He says, we have a new life. You were washed, sanctified, and justified. You're brand new. And he says this, verse 12. He says, 
And it's still not about the rules. That list is not about a do nots. This is about a freedom. He says, verse 12, I have the right to do anything you say, which is true, but not everything is beneficial for me. I have the right to do anything, which is true, but I will not be mastered by anything. This is going to come up later again in this uh, letter, but I want to focus in on something he says here. This is not about legalism, and this is not about lawlessness. This is a challenge to live under new ownership, like this rock that's dropped in. The bigger the rock, the bigger the ripple, and as it echoes out into our life, it changes everything. He says, ask yourself two questions when faced with a choice that is in front of you, whether you should do something or not. He says, not everything is beneficial, and I will not be mastered by it, uh, by anything. So two questions to ask yourself, and the first one is, is this helpful for me? Is what I'm about to do going to help me to know God? Is it going to help me to draw closer to my family? Is this going to help me to grow in my spiritual life? Is this helpful for me? Is this beneficial for me? And then the second question you ask is, will this or does this have the potential to master me or control me or enslave me? Is what I'm about to do, does it have the potential to control or enslave my life? He says, these are the two questions you must ask. Yes, we have liberty, but we aren't to do anything we want because it's not healthy for us. So Paul transitions into talking about another personal area of life, and we'll see if I can get through this in the next couple minutes. Woo. All right, verse 13, for the food, food for the stomach and stomach for the food. Basically means if you're hungry, you eat. Um, he says that's the, that's the saying. If, you want, if you're hungry, you go get food. If you want sex, well, you go out and find somebody. He says, but God will destroy them both. This whole idea of the food and the stomach, we, cravings, they, they just come and go. He says we're not created just to follow Our cravings, our feelings, and our urges, or to just pursue whatever we feel. He says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality. That's pornea. That means any sex outside of God's design. He says, but our bodies were designed for the Lord and the Lord for our body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Our bodies will be new one day. We have a future purpose, and we have a now purpose. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? If you are a Christian, we are family. Look around the room a little bit. If, you, if you're a Christian, we're one body. We are the body of Jesus. We're individually his body. We are together his body. Verse 15 goes on. Shall I take the members of Christ, my body, us, and unite them with a prostitute? That means can a Christian be involved in sexual immorality? And he says, never. He says, never. Do you not know that he who unites, for example, with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, quoting Genesis 2.24, the two will become one. He's talking about the power of sex and God's purpose and design, which is revealed in Genesis chapter 2. He says, for whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Here's a simple principle, and I'm going through these quickly, is God has a design and a purpose for our body. Not just a future purpose at the resurrection, but a now purpose in this life. God crafted and designed us. For a purpose, our physical body and the things that we are that can we that we can do are meant and designed for God's purpose. Now I've got a picture here. Go to this next picture. I think this is hilarious. These are people doing dumb things with a ladder. I'll let you soak in a little bit. Um, this is not the design <laughs> for these ladders. This is off a website. Just if you Google ladder ladder fail. It's hilarious. People do incredibly dumb stuff that is in, in way beyond its purpose and design. And but this is what we this is what we do every day. We go beyond our design that God designed us for. He's got the instruction manual right here, God's word, and we push it to the limits and we try to work around the design that God has for us, and, and it's a spiritual fail, not just a latter fail. 
Now, Paul mentions homosexuality earlier, so I want to take a second just to, to, to talk about this because this is dealing with God's purpose and design for our body. Let's talk about it. We may wish it was different, this issue, but God has a design for your body. You might think, well, this is old-fashioned. This was a homophobic culture, and this is, you know, we are a modern culture now, and we have, you know, um, that's just old-fashioned. They did that back in the old days. Let me tell you something. They didn't do that in the old days. You're believing a lie. This actually, homosexuality is more rampant and normal in their culture than it ever has been in our culture ever. Fourteen of the 15 Roman emperors of the first Roman emperors were all bisexual or homosexual. In fact, Nero, the current emperor at the time that this letter was written, had married two little boys as well as had a wife. And it was not uncommon for men at these temples with prostitutes. A lot of those prostitutes were children and minors, men and women. And it was not uncommon for Roman men to have a wife and a little boy who is a sexual partner. This is the Roman culture. So when Paul is speaking about this issue, it flies in the face of what is normal for them. This is not old-fashioned. This is actually going even, even beyond old-fashioned to God's design, God's purpose. God was pointing, Paul was pointing to God's unique design and purpose for our body. And we either accept what it says or we ignore it. And you must ask yourself, do you really believe the Bible on this issue? Or do you follow what the culture says or what someone's feelings are? I want to talk about the purpose of our body in regards to sex for a quick second. Uh, Genesis 2.24 starts off the first wedding. It says, for this reason, or for this cause and this cause alone, referring to the union between a man and a woman, leading to that one, which is sex. He says, for this reason and this reason alone, a man, specific, gender-specific, will leave his father and his mother, and be united to his wife, gender specific, and they will become one flesh, which is sexual unity as well as emotional vulnerability. He says, for this reason, a man and a woman will do this. Marriage, three things stand out there. Marriage is a gift given to a man and a woman. Number two, sex is between a man and a woman, and sex is for marriage only. That verse is power-packed. It's actually quoted, sometimes uh, it's quoted uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times in the Bible. People say, well, Jesus never spoke on this issue. Jesus said we should just love each other. Well, actually, he did. He talked about it twice in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, and in uh, Matthew. Look at Matthew 19.4. Jesus says this. Jesus answered, have you not read from the beginning? This is God's design. Have you not read from the beginning the creator made them male and female? So he says right off the top, from the very beginning, God has a design for our body and a purpose for our body. And Jesus goes on to say, for this reason or for this cause and this cause alone, a man will leave his father and his mother, be uh, united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, referring to sexual union and their life together. Therefore, where God has joined together, this ideal, this purpose, this meaning, let no man separate. So people say, well, Jesus never talked about this. He did, because this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Paul quoted this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We just read it and in other letters. This is God's purpose and design. And I want you to hear me out. This is in no way meant to attack how you feel, but to affirm how you were formed. That you were designed with purpose and beauty. Paul tells us this design applies to us all. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. We're going to wrap it up real quick here. I have to. Um, is 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Again, pornea. He, we're not to flee sex. We're to flee sexual immorality. We're to run from sex outside of God's design. We're to run to it in God's design. All right? So he says, all other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body, meaning it has a spiritual and a physical consequence. Like you could lie and you could slander and you could hurt people and it doesn't affect you at all. Right? 
I mean, there are people that lie and steal and cheat their way to the top, and they're wealthy and rich, and, and, and they die happy, but they are judged by God in the afterlife. But I tell you what, when you indulge in, in, in pornea, in sex outside of God's design, it doesn't just hurt others. He says, but this is something that deeply affects you and your heart and your self-esteem and your design and your purpose and how you view yourself. It affects your uh, relationship with God and with others. Simple principle, if you're a Christian, you are to live a sexually pure life. It's, it's very simple principle. He doesn't get deep here. He's just kind of laying out, hey, remember God says this, so this is under new ownership. This is how you should be living. And a Christian, if you are a Christian, you should live a sexually pure life. Why is sexual sin highlighted so much in Scripture? Well, because it's incredibly painful to deal with outside of God's plan. If you've ever experienced it outside of God's plan, you know how much it can be confusing. I, I like to say uh, that sex can ruin a good relationship and prolong a bad relationship. Paul says, flee from it. Don't flirt with it. He says, don't dance with it. He says, run from it. It will cause incredible pain. Run from that sexually active relationship that you're in. If you're not married, run from that relationship. If it's outside of God's plan and design, it will cause you heartache and pain. Even if you get married, it will be, you know, I've sat down with couples who have been sexually active before they got married, and it can take years to work over that insecurity that it breeds and that distrust that they have with each other when they even go to work. It's designed to protect and to keep you strong in marriage and in life. Verse 13, we're wrapping this up. He says this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. This is important. All these things that I'm looking at today, these are not an against issue. This is a for issue. God is not against love. He's for love. He's not against sexual limitations. He's for freedom in God's design with sex. He is for you. We often look at this, but God doesn't want me to have love or want me to know somebody or enjoy life. No, this is not an against issue. This is for you. He says, God has designed your body to be for him, and the Lord is for your body. He's for you. He designed you. He knows what will bring the greatest amount of satisfaction and joy and pleasure in your life. He says, I'm for that. God says, I'm for you. Don't make this an against issue. Here's what it comes down to, verse 19. This is the last two verses. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you received from God? When you gave your life to Jesus, when you, when you said yes to Christ, uh, God moved in. He says, you are not your own. Verse 20, you were bought at a price. What's that price? The precious blood of Jesus Christ bought and purchased your life. That's how he's owner of your life if you're a Christian. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Last and very simple principle is this. If you're a Christian, your body belongs to the Lord. Your body belongs to the Lord. Our spirit and our body are the Lord's property. If you're a Christian, your body is under new management, under new ownership. You've been bought with a price. You've been paid for. There's been an incredible renovation. There's been a restoration process. Now you live in his design and your understanding and growing in your purpose. What you do with your body matters. This is what it comes down to. What you put in your body matters. This is not just sexual issues. This is also substance issues. God cares about your body because he owns your body if you are a Christian. This is a reference to the temple of God in Jerusalem. He says, man, there was a place in the old days, a temple where God's Shekinah glory would dwell. Now that temple is no longer needed. You're his temple as a group, as a family, and as individuals. We are the temple where the Shekinah, where the Holy Spirit dwells. So here's the walk away of this. We have new ownership. We have a new family. We have a new walk. We have new life. Now here's the walk away. And is this. Number one, put family first in your fights. For the sake of the family, deal with it or drop it. Number two, put family first in your freedoms. For the sake of yourself in the kingdom, use discernment. True freedom does not mean we can do what we want when we want. Rather, it means we're free to pursue God's best. 
And third, put family first in our sexuality for the sake of others and yourself because this can derail your life. Next week, a little bit more mature content as Paul dives into chapter 7, dealing with, I think, one of the most confusing chapters in all of Corinthians. It has been misinterpreted, uh, and it deals specifically with our sexuality, our singleness, and our purpose in life as a married couple, uh, who we are and how we fit together. Uh, So he's going to talk a little bit more about this very sensitive issue next week. But remember this, you are designed on purpose with a purpose by God. And in his way, in his will, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Let's, let's pray. God, thank you that, uh, Lord, your word uh, was challenging to us maybe. Uh, it's convicting us, Lord, like your word says. And in First Timothy, Lord, that it does uh, convict and it rebukes and it corrects and it, it trains us. It sets us on a right course. And, Lord, I pray that that's what the word of God did today. Lord, if there's Christians here today, Lord, I pray that they would understand the the rock has been dropped, the rock of Jesus Christ into our life. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us understand that that ripple flows out to everyone around us. And that means with the new ownership of our life, there's new things happening in our life and a new way of looking at life. God, I pray that we would continue to be people of love, but we would also know that, God, you have a purpose and a design for us, and it's because of your love that you gave us that. So if you're here right now and you're wondering where you are in God and and you are looking at that short list that that Paul made, are you struggling with one of those areas? Are you stumbling in those areas? Have you embraced those areas? If you're stumbling and struggling, uh, we are available for prayer with you. But if you have embraced that, here's an opportunity for you to let go of that. Right where you are, just say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. God, I'm I give this area of my life up to you. Go ahead and talk to him in your own words. God, forgive me of my sin. I give my life over to you. God, I need help. Sometimes, Lord, I feel, Lord, that that maybe I'm, I'm not in control. In your own words, release your life to the Lord. God, I need I need your spirit to work in me. God, I pray for you. Forgive me my sin. Wash me, Jesus. Sanctify me. I'm justified. Thank you, God. Bought with your blood. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.